This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, I figured that you would say, when I hear the Kinks album, State of Confusion, I think of my mom driving my first gray carpool. <laughs> um, that, that shows remarkable research on your part. <laughs> and that is absolutely true. I, I, can, I can sing all of the, the State of Confusion album um, because of my mom's first gray carpool. Sarah, this may be season two of Rock is Lit, but it's turning into a season of firsts. So far, I've featured a short story collection with music-related stories, Melissa Ragsley's We Know This Will All Disappear, a horror rock novel, Rob Herrera's Hangman's Jam, and now, also for the first time, a science fiction rock novel, your own A Song for a New Day. I didn't know the first thing about DIY music venues. I thought, what is she talking about? What is this? And then I Googled that, and oh, this is a whole thing. So tell me. Oftentimes, it's you know a group of people who are you know have, have formed or are part of some kind of a scene that again yeah feel feel excluded or, or for some reason aren't able to participate in in something that's happening so they make it happen themselves. Warning: This content may inspire rebellious activity. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is Lit! Welcome to Season 2 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by Pantheon Podcast Network. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Thank you.
Hello, lit listeners. If science fiction is your jam, this is the episode for you. Sarah Pinsker is here to talk about her sci-fi rock novel. Yes, they do exist. A Song for a New Day. A story that takes place after a global pandemic makes public gatherings illegal and concerts impossible. Hence the rise of DIY music venues. Shocking premise, I know. In the last segment, Rockets Lit veteran Nabil Ayers drops by to give me some insight into the world of DIY music venues. But first, I'd like to welcome Sarah Pinsker to the show. Sarah is the author of over 50 works of short fiction, two novels, and one collection. Her work has won four Nebula Awards, two Hugo Awards, the Philip K. Dick Award, the Locus Award, and the Theodore Sturgeon Award. Her second collection, Lost Places, will be published by Small Beer Press in May 2023. She is also a singer-songwriter with four albums on various independent labels. Her most recent album, Something to Hold, was released in 2021. She lives in Baltimore, Maryland with her wife and two weird dogs. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm always particularly interested in finding out what the authors on the show who also make music like to listen to. So let's play a set of five questions and find out. What music video made the biggest impression on you? I was thinking about this, talking it over with my sister, uh, and we were comparing notes. And, and I arrived at Don't Come Around Here No More, the Tom Petty song. Good choice. It has that... Alice in Wonderland uh, video that, that's really unsettling. Alice turns into cake and gets eaten. <laughs> I think I saw that at an age where the Alice in Wonderland tie was probably stronger than, you know, a lot of videos didn't have anything that particularly connected to me. Like right. I didn't care about like Robert Palmer and, and Dancing Girls or whatever. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But the ones, the aha take on me one with the video, uh, the the character running away. And yes. then this one where, where you've got the actual Alice in Wonderland and the just the creep factor was great. Uh-huh, definitely. Do you remember how old you were when you first saw that Tom Petty video? No, probably, I would guess 12. Well, that would make an impression. Yeah. All right, picture this. You're in a bar and you see a rock star sitting in a corner nursing a drink and reading your book. Who is it, and what do you do? I'm going to go just with Amy Ray from the Indigo Girls. Mm. I mean, this book has a lot of, it's influenced by a lot of Riot Girl and punk women and, and the folky women that I've listened to over the years. And yeah. um, the ones who stay on, like who got on the road and stayed on the road and who like finish the tour with one band and start start the tour with the other band. And, and so, yeah. Amy Ray is, is on that list. So it's Amy Ray sitting there reading your book. What do you do? I think I'm going to observe for a couple of minutes and make sure she's enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would go up and make sure that she sees that one of the chapters is named after one of her songs. And you should send a drink over. Yeah, I should probably do that too. Um, mm, yeah. That, that, was, that was way smoother than me. Um, clearly, <laughs> clearly, I got distracted by the book and forgot to be polite. Okay. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. Oh, I forgot to think about this one and I don't know what to say. You know, I figured that you would say, when I hear the Kinks album, State of Confusion, I think of my mom driving my first grade carpool. 
<laughs> um, that that shows remarkable research on your part, <laughs> and that is absolutely true. I, I can I can sing all of the the State of Confusion album um, because of my mom's first grade carpool, and every time uh, we lived in San Antonio, and it was a cassette copy, and um, it burned up a whole lot of times. <laughs> so um, she would just buy the the same album on on cassette again and again and again. Mm-hmm. I saw that and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to love this woman because I still have that cassette and I love that cassette. And I had the biggest crush on Ray Davies in the 1980s. And I saw the Kinks when they were on the Word of Mouth tour in I think 84, might've been 85. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen the Kinks either. That, that, that would have been a cool one. And I haven't seen, I haven't seen Ray or Dave solo either. And I still love that Come Dancing video. Yeah. That's a great video. It's really a great album. It's hard for a band to make a dent with a with an album, you know, 20 years after their their big hits. And I think you know, Come Dancing did did get some attention, I imagine. I was I was as we said in first grade, so I don't know how much attention really when I think about it, but I don't know. I think that's an underrated album. I really I really dig it. I know. I mean, I love the song Don't Forget to Dance. That's that's mm-hmm. probably my favorite song on the album. What's on your playlist now? This summer, I saw Brandy Carlisle with Alison Russell opening, and Alison Russell had taken a band on the road with her that uh, was just full of great people from other bands, and and I sort of went down the rabbit hole of of exploring all of their other gigs. Um, so, Sister Strings, who have who also played with Brandy Carlisle, but also did an, a recent album with Peter Mulvey and Sway Wild and Joy Clark. So I was I was digging all of that. Big Joni, which is a, a punk band from, from the UK. And then I listened to a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good local music here in Baltimore, indie rock and indie cabaret punk and stuff. I've been listening to Santa Librada and Manners Manners and Moth Broth and Glorian. All right, last question. What's your favorite rock novel? My favorite rock novel is Wilding Hall by Elizabeth Hand. Do you know that one? I don't know that. I'm adding it to my list. Oh, yeah, you definitely need to add this to your list. It's only a few years old. It's a very short novel. It's maybe a, it's possible that it's a novella, but I think it's right over the cusp in, in novel land. And it is the fake... Uh, it's sort of a documentary-style uh, exploration of a British band going to... A, manor house in the in the country to record their album and some mysterious things happen and it's told in a in a oral history format and i believed that the band existed i i had to like i checked online and i was like oh wait maybe they don't i'm really confused <laughs> i was i was positive and they're they're sort of uh fairport convention ish Ooh, i love fairport convention. yeah yeah i think that's what the the vibe that that, that she was going for I'd call it fantasy or dark fantasy or mild horror, but the band just felt real. 
Oh, she just did it so well. I, I love that book. All right. I'll definitely check that out. That whole idea of recording in English Manor House reminds me of Headley Grange, where Led Zeppelin recorded mm-hmm. their fourth album. And then there's that overlap because Sandy Denny from Fairport Convention sang on that album right. for the Battle of Evermore. Right, right, right. Thank you for the tip. Very interesting. You're welcome. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Sarah Pinsker. Make sure you stick around for the last segment of the episode to hear Nabil Ayer shed light on the world of DIY music venues. Across the evening sky All the birds are leaving But how can they know It's time for them to go This is Sarah Pinsker, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back with Sarah Pinsker, author of A Song for a New Day. So, Sarah, this may be season two of Rock is Lit, but it's turning into a season of first. So far, I've featured a short story collection with music-related stories, Melissa Ragsley's We Know This Will All Disappear, a horror rock novel, Rob Herrera's Hangman's Jam, and now, also for the first time, a science fiction rock novel, your own A Song for a New Day. So I told Rob when I interviewed him, I didn't know there was such a thing as a horror rock novel. And I'll tell you pretty much the same thing. I didn't know that there was this whole subgenre of science fiction rock novels before I read yours. And the weird thing is I did this Google search today and it turns out there are a ton of them out there. Have you read much in that subgenre? 
I've read a fair number. I, I get put on a lot of panels about music in science fiction or fantasy. There tend to be more, if you found a bunch of science fiction ones, I'd be curious what you're thinking of. It's fairly common in, in fantasy, but less common in science fiction. Lewis Shiner's Glimpses is a time travel thing where someone goes back in time and meets um, a bunch of 60s rock stars. Depends on if you call time travel science fiction or fantasy, too. Yeah, I'm not real clear on what the distinction is, but I just pulled up a Goodreads list, and it, it's like a, a hundred rock and roll, sci-fi, and fantasy novels. Soul Music by Terry Pratchett. Um, here's one: Buddy Holly is That's alive and well. Book. Yeah, somebody else recommended that to yeah, me. Yeah, he's a, he's a, a great author and a musician himself. A lot of the a lot of the people oh. who write the overlap tend to be musicians. I've noticed. Mm -hmm. Lou Shiner also plays music. And that was Bradley Denton, I think you were just mentioning. Yes. There's a George R.R. R. Martin novel called Armageddon Rag. I see that. From what I understand, nearly sunk his career. It wasn't what the people <laughs> were looking for at the moment. It's interesting. It's, it's, a, it's flawed, but interesting. Um, and I think he did it as a, as a project that he wanted to do that wasn't necessarily one that, that the world was ready for. But it's, it's kind of fun. Gotcha. I mean, long story short, there's just a lot out there. Yeah, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot. And then in the short story realm, Cherie Renee Thomas uh, includes a lot of music and Tania D. Johnson. And uh, there was a great issue of Fire magazine that was, that was a music issue that had some really cool stories in it, Yard Dog by uh, Tade Thompson. There is a lot there, but there, there could be a lot more. And I've enjoyed, you know, it's it's fully within my realm because I'm a I'm a musician too. So I, I've enjoyed trying to just do it well. I think a lot of people have a complaint when they don't feel like like it it gets the music side right. So I, I try to get the music side right. Well, you did. It's a great novel. Before we talk about the novel, I just have to say I don't like to read reviews or do much, if any, research on a book before I read it because I don't want my experience with the novel to be colored by somebody else's opinions or interpretations. All that said, I started reading A Song for a New Day and had to stop and look again at the publication date, which is 2019, before the COVID-19 lockdown. And I thought, well, this author's either psychic or she started this whole damn pandemic to sell books. It was just amazing how pressing it was. And basically, the novel follows the life of a musician in a future where pandemics and terrorism make public events such as concerts illegal. And this is published in 2019. So you had to have been working on it for years before it came out in 2019, long before COVID was ever a thought. What was the origin of the book? I was working on it for years and years. I wrote a novelette, a long short story in 2014 called Our Lady of the Open Road that uh, featured the same character, Luce. Um, in a similar situation. She's on the road with her band, and it's just sort of a day-in-the-life type of story. And that one leans a little... It's a little... There, there's some differences. It, it's got... Uh, she has different priorities, and the, the nature of the thing that went wrong is slightly different. Okay. Uh, but, but that was... The, it was the easiest story I'd ever written. It's 15,000 words, and I wrote it in two days, which is not my usual pace. Her voice just came really easily to me. The scenario made sense to me. If you get a musician talking about like 
life on the road and what what is hard right now like you know they have a lot to say so it's easy enough to sort of extend those situations and say into the future and say well what would what would keep someone who was a a road warrior on the road and what would you know what would be the the things that would force them off in that future and when i started thinking about my first novel i realized that was the voice that had been easiest for me to write and and that i could easily find a novel's worth of stuff to say in her voice. So I went back to it. So that was 2015 when I started expanding it into a novel. And yeah, I worked on it for three years before I sold it. And then it came out and I had uh, about about three months before people started talking and six months before the the lockdown. Yeah, I was going to ask, what was the what was the period of time between when it came out and when you had lockdown? Yeah, it came out in September 2019. So so I got to I got to tour with it and I a little bit um I got to play at Pace Studios which was pretty cool um in mm-hmm. in the name of a book instead of a, an album. Yeah, and then you know it was winter and I don't tend to travel as much and then suddenly everything was everything was done and I was getting a lot of calls to talk about um whether or not I had planned the pandemic. <laughs> of course. Yeah, but, I'm sure you did. Of getting in your way while you're trying to steal the day. Not guilty. And I'm not here for the rest. I'm not trying to steal your vest. I'm not trying to be smart. I only want. You know, I, I got a lot right. Uh, the stuff that I got right is is sort of easy picking to me. There's a writer named Theodore Sturgeon who, who's qu- the question he always asked his students was, ask the next question, ask the next question. And he kind of pushed you to, to say, well, and then what would happen? And then what would happen? I was mostly, to be honest, thinking of gun violence and the rise of, of the kind of domestic terror we see a lot of. And I was thinking about what would be the thing that would keep people indoors. Uh, even like while I was writing it, there was the the bombing at the show in in France. So all this stuff was kind of feeding into it. And I was just saying, what would be the last straw? What would be the thing that, you know, and, and I decided that that if there were two things that kind of happened around the same time, one of which was a violent thing and one of which was a pandemic, and the two of them combined, and there were people who wanted to take advantage of that and thought that it would be easier if people were inside and you could sell to people more easily. And there were technologies that were on the cusp of, of being ready that, that could be rolled out. And there was a profit factor. So I, I just started playing with all of that. Sadly, what I got really wrong, in, in my opinion, is just I assumed better intentions from people. Uh, like I didn't expect masks to be politicized. I didn't think of masks, but I also yes. didn't expect that whole politicization thing. Or, or politicization of caring for one another. Right. So a lot of the interviews I did were in those first few months where people were shutting down by, you know, and it, it really felt like an act of love where, where people were saying we're going to, you know, musicians were coming off the road and venues were shutting down and a lot and all of these things were happening. And people said, this will be hard for us. But this is what we if we all do this, then we can stop this from happening. And, and of course, that didn't happen. And in some ways, parts of the book look a little like 
now like an anti-lockdown <laughs> manifesto. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, do you worry that people are going to see certain quotes from the novel taken totally out of context because the situation is different in the book than what actually happened? Right. And and that they're going to think the author is one of those anti-vaxxer COVID is a hoax folks, because here are a couple of quotes. Places would open again soon, I was sure, when people stopped accepting the government-fueled paranoia as normal. And then the other one, politicians who wielded restriction in the name of freedom and safety or the ones who didn't stop them, or the ones who were sure it would only be temporary. I know you're not on the side of the anti-vaxxers. Your position is completely different. Right. For one thing, my character very much wants to be out on the road and cannot fathom a life not on the road. But also, my intention, and for what intentions are worth, uh, first of all, it was meant to be fiction. (laughs) It was meant to be. Yeah. My intention was that the the violence was actually the thing that that was the bigger deal. Yeah, and that and that a lot of the book happens long afterward, um, when when the restrictions mm-hmm. are still in place that no longer need to be. And I'm currently one of the people arguing that that you know we could use a couple more restrictions again right now. So uh, the book is not speaking for me. At, regarding the current situation. But yeah, it's a little unfortunate that it came so close. I think I got the the what would happen in the immediate aftermath, right? But the thing that I got wrong was what would what people would do next and the political ramifications. Hopefully Luce's good intentions come through anyway. <laughs> so how do you feel about people like Van Morrison and Eric Clapton bitching about lockdown and people not being able to to go to concerts. Oh, I, yeah, I don't have any time for them. Like, <laughs> I mean, Amen. I mean, there's so many people to feel for in this situation. Like, not only musicians, but like uh, people who own the small venues and people who uh, professional roadies. I mean, like, like the musicians are still going to make money off of CDs or downloads or or uh, T-shirts or whatever. And we'll have fans who will ultimately find some way to support them. But there are a lot of people who support the musicians who will put in terrible situations also. We're, we're in an awful situation. We're going to continue to be in I, for a while. And I, I worry for everyone. But I think Van Morrison and, and Eric Clapton definitely have the wrong of it. And there are middle grounds to be, to be had that are nowhere near them. Yes. Especially, these are two guys who have a lot of money, for one thing. So it it seemed, yes, it seemed very self-serving, their bitchiness about it all. Yeah, I I think, and I don't know, neither of them has done anything that that feels relevant to me in a long time. And I've never been a Clapton fan, so I'll save my concern for for the the smaller acts trying to to survive. We're the ones who are more willing to, to wait it out. Right. Since we can't travel anywhere, we have to go into the space and we have to do a proper disinfection. So we don't spread the virus across the universe. Cheers. I'm gonna leave this place. Going out of space. I'll be a refugee. So there are two main characters from whose points of view the story is told. Loose Cannon, I love that stage name she gave herself. 
She's a musician. You've already mentioned her. And her career takes a nosedive just as it's really taking off because of the bombings that shut down music venues. And then we have Rosemary, who's younger, and she works for a tech company that does virtual reality live concerts, and her job is to go out and find bands. So the two storylines run parallel to each other, then intersect. Is that how it started out for you, or did you initially focus on just one character's storyline? As I said, Luce's voice came more easily to me, but, but when I started thinking about how to, how to turn her story into a novel, I realized I wanted that other character fairly early. My first drafts were in in a song format. That that was how I kind of I, I play a lot of games with myself to get myself through drafting. And one of them was, <laughs> uh, well, this could be a novel in a song format. So so if one of them oh. is the A part and one of one of them is the B part, hmm. um, then they can kind of alternate, and I'll have a bridge that takes place on a bridge, and I'll have a coda at the end, and um, there's a 16 bar solo, which is loose, uh, going to 16 bars without her band. So it's so low. <laughs> um, I, I did a lot of that, that kind of thing. And um, I sold it in that format. And okay. then my, my editor said, uh, I, you know, we're going to buy this, but real talk, it, a song is not a novel. And mm. there's, it needs, it, it needed to come back to both of them more often was mostly what she was saying. Like the chunks were too big. Um, okay. So I sort of un- unbraided their parts and rebraided them in a different way so that they would come together. That's interesting. And, and I love talking to authors who are also musicians because that seems to, that musician part of them and the song crafting part, the, the record crafting part seems to extend to making the fiction. Yeah, yeah, it just made sense to me. Getting getting through a novel, as you know, like you know, you just have to kind of battle through that draft sometimes. Damn straight. But, but there there are games you can play and ways you can motivate yourself forward. I also all of the chapter titles are named after songs. They're, they had to either be songs that one of the characters would know or could possibly know or um so that some of them are real songs, some of them are songs in their world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones that are songs in our world, I said they had to be relevant to that person at that time. So Luce's picks are a little more wide ranging. She's a musician. She's aware of stuff. Yeah. Um, and Rosemary, who starts off kind of cloistered and only listening to, you know, the big name stuff that the algorithm tells her to listen to kind of gradually branches out and, and starts discovering other music. So there, there's sort of a, a playlist in the chapter titles. Did you make a playlist for the book? I did. Uh, it's hanging out on, on Spotify somewhere. Okay. I was struck by the political aspects of the story too, Sarah. One instance, after lockdown in the novel, there's a basic universal income put in place, which I found really interesting. There's also commentary on the healthcare system during the before times, which is what the characters call the time before lockdown. One character doesn't seek medical care when she gets sick because she'd let her health insurance lapse and knew she couldn't afford to see a doctor. So had I read the novel when it first came out before COVID hit, I would have thought, man, is that what it's going to take to bring about these kinds of changes and illness sweeping the country that keeps everybody isolated? So how frustrating for you as the author of what 
I'm assuming you intended to be kind of that sort of warning that when a real pandemic and lockdown occurred, those particular changes didn't happen. And it makes me wonder what will it take for the country to progress? I mean, I thought Sandy Hook would bring about major gun law changes and it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I I think steering this country is like steering one of those giant, you know, the Titanic base. I don't, I mean, Mm. hopefully without an iceberg, but, but you know, (laughs) those ships that, that are slow in turning and, you know, it's so frustrating um, Mm -hmm. to, to see the, the pace of things and to see the compromises and, the things that, you know, a good bill gets gutted and, and suddenly what you're left with is, is maybe better than what was before. And I do think, I mean, the number of people who have no insurance right now is much lower than, than it ever was in the past. I think they're down to like, it's down to something like 8% of this country has, has no insurance. And that's, oh wow yeah, I, I think that's the number I just saw. It was, it was an eye opener. Um, okay, which doesn't mean that everyone has good insurance, but they like a lot of people have something now. I still think a for-profit healthcare system is a ridiculous thing, and and that you know people it, it's not stopping people from going bankrupt over things that are completely outside of their control. I don't know what it's going to take to change that, and I I think our fear of socialized medicine is such that that I don't I don't know that we'll ever get to the place we need to be. Well, I I think something else the pandemic showed is that we need to have a separation between employment and health insurance. Mm -hmm. People were were losing their jobs and then you lose your job, you lose your health insurance and then, oh Jesus, what do we do? Yeah. um, I used to work for agencies that worked with kids with developmental disabilities. And you also saw like time and again, like parents who would have to leave work to go get their kid from school. And mm-hmm. they were working jobs that didn't have any dispensation for them to leave work if they had to. And so they would lose their jobs. And if they lost their jobs, they'd lose their health oh, insurance. God. You know, there's still some backstops for kids. You know, if you're, if you're not making any money, there's still some things that can be done. But in terms of actually survival in, the, in, the, in this country, it's just rough. <laughs> Um, yes. So uh, what I was going to say a second ago, I think also, so I, I had prison pipeline as well, just because mm-hmm. I was thinking about things that, that we could fix if we made some of those changes permanent when we think about them, like, like do all the people who are in jail need to be in jail? Like we did let some nonviolent offenders out in order to um, make, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic in order to make the jails less crowded. Do all these people really need to be like, what about the bail system? There are all these people who are crowded together who who we don't need to be holding and who get stuck for years, you know, in those situations. We shut down the courts too. So so like a lot of people who are waiting for their day in court got stuck even longer in jail That's because right. they couldn't afford bail and they also weren't getting their day in court. So a lot of the things that I was thinking one could change in the right circumstances, even if the circumstances are horrible. I, I put them into my my hopeful hopeful pandemic novel.
There's also a richness, a fullness to the novel. Two major characters are both queer, for one thing, and such queerness isn't othered, as it so often is in literature where you might have the token LGBTQ character in a story. And I know you've said, quote, I love writing queer characters in situations where their queerness is not part of the crisis at hand. In that respect, this is a political move as well. A lot's been said about cultural appropriation in literature in the last few years. Do you have an opinion about who should and should not write about queerness in fiction? No, I think the the more the more the merrier. But also, if you're writing about a group other than yourself, you know, I encourage people to to do the research and think about what they're doing with those characters. I trust another queer author more than a straight author when it comes to. What you know, whether they're aware of the stereotypes, whether they're aware of the tropes, whether just just like if they're going to give the two characters happiness and then murder one of them, you know, if you have a whole book full of queer characters and one of them, you know, turns out to be the villain, then you can still have the like the evil queer villain. And if you know, and if you have to kill someone off, you kill someone off. But when you're still tokenizing characters and then reducing them to cliche, often inadvertently, it is still. Uh, really irritating yeah i like populating a world that looks like the world that i see too like i wanted the the scene the the music scene in in the in the book to be what i see which is like you know when you if queer bands put together a a show like they're gonna call their friends and that's gonna include a lot Mm -hmm. of other cool queer bands and and maybe a token straight band but (laughs) yeah uh, i just wanted to to get some of that in there too. I was also impressed by the world building you did in the novel. Everything about how society operates changes after that lockdown. And for one thing, people have these contraptions called hoodies. So explain what a hoodie is. Uh, I, I, I kind of left it deliberately vague what it looks like. It, hopefully it's evocative of, of something. Like it, I think I, you can create a mental picture. It can do both, uh, what do you call it? Like augmented reality stuff, so you can use it to uh, look around you and, and identify the birds that you see, um, and then and then it also can do virtual reality, like the kind that Mark Zuckerberg wants to do, only better. But you know, as I was reading, I kept noticing everything is an illusion in the new world. Hoodies make that possible. You can change your environment, go to virtual concerts, well, where you'll encounter people who are presenting themselves with avatars rather than their real faces. You can even date in a created space without leaving home. It's really sanitized and safe and not real. So the question that arises is, is it worth it to be safe and live in an illusory state? And do we actually need real human interactions or do virtual connections suffice? That is the question I'm asking in there. Even when I started writing this, you know, part of what I was thinking about in that initial short story that turned into the novel was just the fact that if you're playing in town on a Wednesday night, it's hard to get people out, you know, and that's eight years ago too, not just during the pandemic when people are a little more cautious and a little more used to staying home. But like, it is hard to get people to go see local music, especially. It's hard to get people away from their televisions and to try new stuff, to arrive in time for the opening band instead of just the headliner, like, you know, that stuff that, that bands have been dealing with for a long time. I, I think initially that's part of what I was thinking of was just, 
it's hard to get people out and and it could get harder. Who would still be on the road? There are virtual concerts in the book and holograms. How far off do you think we are from that becoming a reality? There are people trying that right now. Uh, there was a a virtual festival. I think it was put on a whole festival. Yeah, yeah. There were articles about it. I think it was in. I'm putting in in quotes, but I think it was a British thing. Oh wow! It had the area that your avatar could walk around. Oh my god! <laughs> there were you know merch tents, and you could buy clothes, and then the bands performed, and you're still watching the bands perform on your computer. You know, we haven't quite got gotten there with that yet. Probably. How long ago was that now? 18 years ago or so now, I would guess. There wasn't there there was a U2 IMAX movie that was 3D. It, it like I know it played at, I went to see it at the Science Center here. So it was the full IMAX experience in 3D. You were wearing your headsets and the camera swooped around so you were basically like sitting there on stage. The sound was great. Um you could look over and see the settings on the edges like gear like you could see the set list you could see um you know what what pedals he was using um and you couldn't direct the camera so i would have like hung out there and checked out the gear a little more i remember sitting in that in that room and saying why would anyone go to a concert again this is the best seat in the house like it doesn't get better than this like the sound is fantastic you're basically there I couldn't afford to sit in the front row of of most of the bigger shows that I want to see. And here I am like basically on stage with them without getting hit by sweat and (laughs) um, without getting elbowed and without the big guy standing in front of me. And you can go pee and not have to worry about losing your place. Yeah, it really was amazing. What I found during the pandemic, I've, I've watched a lot of shows online and the ones that I liked best were actually the ones where they were a little rougher. There was a Jayhawks show where they were, it was all covers and they crashed and burned like two or three times. Like they, like they forgot part of a song, like, like one of them like went off and forgot the bridge entirely. And one of them started in the wrong key and they had to start again. And, (laughs) you know, and they said like, we're not, this isn't going to be available after tonight. We're not like, these are all covers and we didn't pay to license them past tonight. It was a great show. There was just something really real about it. So I think. Some combination of those things where you get the slick performance that that I saw from you too, like sitting on stage and the thing where where it felt really real and it's just the you know a band uh standing around trying to play covers with each other and and not knowing where the next chorus starts halfway through but for good and for bad, and I think there is some good in it uh those things are coming, and they're they're pretty close. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Dubiosa Collective's Quarantine Tour 2020. Since we are not able to play a concert in your city, we will play it on internet. You are strongly advised to behave like you normally would at the regular show. Turn up the volume on your speakers, put your hands in the air, dance, sing along, jump around and enjoy as much as possible. I remember the 2012, I think it was the 2012 Olympics. There was that hologram of Freddie Mercury at the opening ceremony. And Tupac at Coachella, right? Yeah. And Brian May singing Love of My Life with, it's either a hologram or a video of Freddie Mercury in his concerts. And most recently, 
I've seen Paul McCartney duetting with a video of John Lennon in concert. So there's all this use of technology to make the experience something more than what it it, it could have been. Right. And and I'm I'm with you. It's like it's well, well, who wouldn't want to see Paul McCartney singing with John Lennon? Who wouldn't want to see Freddie Mercury popping up at a Brian May concert, Queen concert? So it, it has its benefits, but there's something that seems a little scary to me too. Something that we're losing. There's something dangerous in that in particular. Um, also, which is if you can see Queen with Freddie Mercury in live in concert, even if it's a hologram, but it's a perfect, you know, hologram. Why would you go see a band you've never heard of? Mm. I mean, that's where I start getting worried again, is that like people will just sort of live in this feedback loop where it's already hard to get people to to check out new music and to pay the artists who actually, you know, need their money. And I I do definitely worry that that if Queen (laughs) and Michael Jackson and Selena, I'm just thinking of dead rock stars now, like, like if everyone who, but it would be anyone who they've had a chance to like digitize in that way. Uh, I guess um, if they're all on on tour, like like who is going to go to the little shows? Probably the same people who go to the little shows now is the answer. Well, it could be. There's so much about a song for a new day that's about what happens to the creative process when under stress. Suddenly, there's no place for musicians to play and fans to experience live music. So the local do-it-yourself music scene evolves. And there was something about these underground venues, like somebody's basement in their apartment and you know a band is playing if the outside lights are on that reminded me of the speakeasies during the prohibition was that kind of what you were going for yeah and also i've been to a lot of diy clubs that may or may not be legal sarah let's talk about your music you play guitar and sing and i've been listening to a lot of your work on youtube lately and really digging it and these songs immediately come to mind fanny's letter i think that is from Edith May's Paradise, but it's 2015 that I saw. And you have the sky and cave drawing. I mean, there's some good shit out there. And I'm picking up on traces of the Afghan wigs and even Carol Van Dyke from the Black Velvet Band and Concrete Blondes, Johnette Napolitano. How would you describe your sound? Oh, th- those are some some great influences. Yeah, you said Afghan wigs, which I appreciate. And and. Concrete Blonde. We've covered. We've covered. Uh, probably, probably will. Probably will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what else is in my DNA? I, I just listen to such eclectic stuff. For some reason, I, I struggle whenever that question comes up. But but yeah, I mean, I grew up on the the Kinks and uh, the early Ten Thousand Maniac stuff and Talking Heads and and REM. A lot of the indie stuff, not the indie bands. Yeah, I like. Uh, Matthew Sweet, I like sort of propulsive power pop, power folk, whatever you want to like, like stuff that has guitars and a good melody and a, a good beat to it. What's going on with your band, The Stalking Horses? I know, sadly, you lost your drummer in 2020. Is the band still on hiatus? Yeah, we we actually got together for the first time this fall. For the first time since then, Tony's memorial was actually the last. The last gig we played uh, before the lockdown because he he passed away in December of mm. 2019. Yeah, we we got together with a with a friend 
on drums and played recently and it felt pretty good. I think it's one of those points where where like we played, you know, some older stuff and I was in that position of wondering, you know, why this song, why this song. So so I have to kind of get my head straight on on do I want to play the other those songs or do we want to do something new? We can still incorporate those songs, but is it worth getting together to only play the old stuff or are we actually like working on something? And the the funny thing is that the thing that, that sort of felt newest and most interesting was I, I, had, I had taught them how to play. I don't know if your research brought you across my my weird story song called uh, Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather. No, it did not. Uh, the story came out in last year. And it, this year it won the Hugo, the Nebula, the Locus Award, the UG Foster Way Award. Way cool. Yeah, and and got nominated for World Fantasy, but congratulations! Thank you, thank you. Um, But I was just thinking you might appreciate it because it's a um, it's online. You you can find it at Uncanny Uncanny Magazine. It's basically you know the the lyric side genius. Yeah, right. So so it's basically a um, a bunch of people commenting on lyrics and trying to figure out what they mean. Because I had come across a bunch of things on on Ungenius where people were just going way off base on. On lyrics and making guesses that were ridiculous. Like I think the one that that was irritating me was it was the Grateful Dead version of a traditional song, and people were like, "Oh, yeah, this this verse is about LSD." And I was like, "That verse was written in the 1600s." Like, I don't God. think no, I, don't, um, I don't think you're quite on the money with that, friend. Right. But, but so the story itself is the lyrics of a fake uh, old English ballad that I. Um, and then, and then all the commentary on it. And in the course of writing the song for the story, I also just wrote the song. And then I figured, well, why not? And I and I recorded the song just super fast on my computer. So it's not a great version, but but um, there's a whole bunch of versions mentioned in the song, like in the story. It it refers to the Fairport Convention version and the White Stripes version and and everything. And and I have this urge to record those versions which which sounds really silly but like i can hear all the different <laughs> versions of this old song in my head and and so we we played that in a in a just to bring the whole conversation around again we played it in a sort of crazy horse crazy horse ish style and it was it was just a blast so i think the long answer to the question is if there's stuff that feels new and fresh even if it's a fake it, ancient ballad um that then i would like to continue with the band um i still love playing with those guys so that that's a long version and and i'd still do some solo stuff here and there well i will check out that story that sounds right up my alley yeah yeah i'd love to hear what you what you think about it okay I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. And you can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. Ready? Okay. 
First category is music eras, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, or 2000s. Oh, um, oh, I'm going to have to say the 70s. All right, my soul sister. <laughs> I can dig it. Next one is music formats, cassette tapes, CDs, or vinyl. Can I qualify my I'll answer, but then qualify it? I'm going to say CDs, but but I'm only saying that um, I, I love the feel of vinyl. I love the sound of vinyl. I do not love storing vinyl. Okay, um, that's fair. So that's my answer. All right. CDs, but with that caveat. Okay. Yeah. Book format, physical books, Kindle, or audiobook? Physical. Me too. All the way. Singers. Patty Smith, Janis Joplin, Joan Jett. Oh man, that that's not fair. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, if you're asking who has the quotes best voice and it's Janis, if you're asking who has like torn my heart out at a show, it's Patty and who's just a general badass than Joan Joan Jett. I kind of figured if you if you qualified all of your responses, I kind of figured that's what you were going to say. Yeah, that one. I mean, I've been really good about actually making decisions on the others. If you know me, I, I'm not very good <laughs> at decisions, so so I did I did well there. I did catch um, Joan Jett's drummer's uh, drumstick with my neck once. I have you it did, yeah, yeah. And you still have it? Oh yeah, I kept it. Oh, nice. She was my first concert. Oh, that's awesome. I saw her on the I Love Rock and Roll tour. That is super cool. Okay, last category. Think really okay. hard about this. It's really important. Guitarist. Okay. Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page, or Jimmy Page? <laughs> uh, I, I will give you Jimmy Page. Jimmy, Jimmy Page is a fantastic guitarist. Thank um, you very much. That's the right answer. All right. <laughs> okay, we're getting near the end here. here. Here's a fun fact about you. You actually use an old-fashioned hourglass with a half hour's worth of sand to clock your writing time. Is that correct? That is true. I would totally flash on Dorothy in the Witch's Castle if I did that. I would be so distracted. Oh, no. It, it's, I, I, I use it specifically um, to keep myself off of my phone. Um, okay. I, I, I have a lot of trouble with distractions right now, to the point where I actually just ordered a what's basically a glorified word processor um, ah. to try um, reducing this even further. But I get so distracted. And so, so I flip that thing and I say, the phone is in the other room for the duration of this. And I can do that. And I can do it several times in a row. But okay. Yeah, I just, it's gotten worse and worse. I, I just lose my, lose my train of thought and, or I do anything to keep from writing because I don't feel like doing the work. So I have to, I have to play games with myself. I am familiar with that. I understand that. See, ever since I read that, I keep flashing on Dorothy in the Witch's Castle <laughs> <laughs> and this is the problem because, you know, people need to seriously rethink the ending of The Wizard of Oz. It's not this happy, there's no place like home and everything's going to be great now that Dorothy's back kind of ending. You know damn well Mrs. Gulch is going to come back for Toto. She was going to take him to be put down at the beginning. She's coming back. This this troubles me deeply. I kind of assume that she got whisked away permanently. But um, I don't want to think about that too much because now that you mentioned that, I, I'm going to be worried for Toto. <laughs> okay. 
Last question. Any nagging what-if questions you're contemplating as a plot point for new work you can tell us about so we can, I don't know, prepare for another coming disaster? <laughs> um, my most recent book would, would also warn you, don't let Elon Musk put a chip in your head. So that would, that would oh, be the God. one that I'll hold on to for now. Um, okay. Yeah, don't trust autopilot. Yes, is a, a gimme. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think those are that's a good three for now. Okay. All right. I won't press. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Sarah. Find out more about Sarah Pinsker online at sarahpinsker.com and on Twitter at Sarah Pinsker. Pick up a copy of A Song for a New Day. It's a great book. And pick up Sarah's other books at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. We'll take another short break. Then we'll be back with Nabil Ayers, who is going to tell you everything you ever wanted to know about DIY music venues. This is Nabil Ayers, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And we're back with more Rock is Lit. In this final segment, Nabil Ayers is in the cyber house. Nabil has written about race and music for the New York Times, NPR, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, and GQ. His memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, was published in June 2022 via Viking Penguin. Nabil is the president of Beggars Group U.S., where he has run campaigns for The National, Big Thief, Grimes, Future Islands, and St. Vincent as well as reissue campaigns including Pixie's album Doolittle, which was certified platinum in 2019. At age 25, Nabil and his business partner opened Seattle's Sonic Boom record store, which they sold to a longtime customer in 2016. As a drummer, Nabil has performed in several bands, including The Long Winters and Tommy Stinson. On his own record label, the control group Valley of Search, Nabil has released music by Kate LeBon, The Killers, P.J. Harvey, Patricia Brennan, and his uncle, the jazz musician, Alan Brofman. Nabil lives with his wife in Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for joining me, Nabil, or should I say, welcome back. Ah, oh, thank you. It's nice to be back. <laughs> I'm thrilled to have you back. You were a guest on Season 1, Episode 10, featuring Jennifer Halp's novel, Come As You Are. And you and Charles R. Cross appeared in the final two segments of that episode to offer your insights into Kurt Cobain and the Seattle grunge scene of the 1990s to add real-world context to Jennifer's novel. The last time you were on the podcast, your memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, had come out just a couple of months prior. 
The book chronicles your journey to connect with your musician father, Roy Ayers, and examines the lines that define family and race. We talked a lot about that memoir and your background, but I wasn't able to include much of that conversation in episode 10. However, lit listeners, you can find our whole discussion of My Life in the Sunshine and some other outtakes from my previous interview with Nabil in the Rock is Lit vault, and I'll put those links in the show notes. So how has the book promotion been going? I keep comparing it to to playing in a band because I did that for so long and would tour. You know, you put out a record and you tour, and that's sort of what I'm doing. I did about 30 events uh, in the second half of last year, and I think I'll do at least that many this year, hopefully more, and, and just going to new places. But what's what's really fun about it for me and what keeps it interesting and keeps it going is all the people that I meet in all these places. Because it's especially, I mean, every place I go, there's someone connected to my father, whether that's an actual relative or someone who worked on a record with him in the 80s or played in his band in the 70s. It's really been crazy. So that that's kind of what keeps me in it is that the story actually evolves the more I do. And so I, there's this fear that if I stop, the story will stop. And I really like the story. So it's, it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the focus of this episode is Sarah Pinsker's sci-fi rock novel, A Song for a New Day. In a nutshell, the novel follows the life of a musician in a future where pandemics and terrorism make public events such as concerts illegal. And it's so it's so crazy because she wrote that years before the COVID pandemic ever was an inkling in anybody's mind. It's just, it wound up being so prescient. In the novel, suddenly there's no place for musicians to play and fans to experience live music. So the local do-it-yourself music scene evolves. Now, I had never heard of a DIY music scene. I figured she was just talking about people meeting up in other people's houses. So I Googled Mm -hmm. it. There's this whole thing. I didn't realize it was even a thing. So you've played drums in various bands and operated the iconic Sonic Boom Records in Seattle, and now you're a record company executive. I figure you must know a thing or two about DIY music venues. So first of all, what are they? The first version of it that I'm familiar with, which I didn't really understand at the time, but when I was a kid in the 70s in New York City, my uncle, who's a jazz saxophone player, Alan Brofman, he and a bunch of friends had this incredible loft on Canal Street in New York, like this really divey apartment the whole building is four stories the whole building cost five hundred dollars a month and this is Mm. this is now tribeca this is the most expensive zip code in america right now and this is in 1973 to to 79 or something like that it was really it wasn't a bad neighborhood it was just like the edge of the earth in new york there was nobody there and abandoned buildings and so they had this great but dumpy old building everyone had their own floor and they all displayed music and on the main floor there's what used to be maybe a restaurant, like a very small space, and they turned it into a venue. And every Friday night, and of course, it's illegal. They didn't have a license. They didn't pay taxes or register it with the city. But every Friday night, they had concerts. They'd charge you know, $2 at the door, and people would come. And that is completely a DIY venue. And a lot of it was in response. I mean, what was happening in New York at the time is there was this sort of new breed of more experimental jazz musicians. And so New York's always had lots of jazz clubs, but they weren't booking these people because these people weren't playing traditional jazz. And so part of it was, well, there's no place else to play. So we have these incredible spaces and these lofts in Soho, and we'll just do it ourselves and make these DIY venues. So I don't know if they were, they didn't call it DIY, but it was exactly the same as as what's been happening. I mean, I would guess forever in some way, shape or form. 
Yeah, I was I was flashing on the speakeasies in the in the 1920s yeah. during Prohibition, mm-hmm. and you'd knock on the door, and there'd be a special knock or a special <laughs> password or something to get in. But yeah. I, you know, I'm noodling around online looking for information about this. I saw this piece in Tom Tom magazine that describes DIY music venues as a petri dish, but for beautifully blooming works of art. And the quote goes on this, as follows. In these cultural incubators, artists are allowed to experiment with sounds, sights, and feelings and take their work in totally new directions. So it sounds like they're almost like some semblance of an artist colony that give you this opportunity to experiment people who wouldn't be able to play maybe someplace else. Right. Yeah. And oftentimes it's, you know, a group of people who are, you know, have, have formed or are part of some kind of a scene that again, yeah, feel feel excluded or, or for some reason aren't able to participate in in something that's happening. So they make it happen themselves. When you were playing in bands, were you ever playing at these kinds of venues or, or were they strictly clubs? For the most part it was clubs. Yeah, not but there's one time that I remember really well, which was super fun. Um, I was in a band called Alien Crime Syndicate. So this would have been this is probably in the very late nineties, and we were supposed to be playing at a club in Denton, Texas. And it was one of those things where we pulled up and the club was just closed and you know, we're like, Oh, let's wait, someone will show up and no one showed up. And then the other band came and and they're like, Yeah, we heard the place got shut down. You know, whatever. The place the place mm. obviously wasn't opening and the show obviously wasn't happening. The other band was from in town and we were from Seattle from very far away and had, you know, driven. We didn't drive there for that one show, but we were on tour driving through. And they said, Oh, our friend's got a great house. They'll have a party tonight. We can go play there. And it just turned into a house party. And I think they charged people a few dollars at the door. And that was one of the really most fun shows I remember on that tour because it was almost like taking it back to when I was in high school when you just played like in someone's living room or basement and people were really close to you and you know maybe there was a carpet like it was so different than a club <laughs> so it wasn't wasn't technically a DIY venue but it was in that we couldn't play here so we literally just brought our stuff to someone's house and played there and had a great time was it in the neighborhood yeah, it was in like a residential neighborhood, and I think it. Nobody wasn't a called the cops. No, <laughs> wow. You mentioned just a second ago illegal venues. What's the difference between an illegal DIY music venue and one that actually is legal? I guess I mean I I don't totally know, but I assume it's just you know starting a proper business, setting it up with the city or the state, and paying taxes and having insurance and all those things that you have to do as a business. Whereas if you don't do any of that. You can just say, hey, come in, it's $5 and <laughs> take the money. And, <laughs> you know, and of course, if anything happens, someone can get in a lot of trouble. There's liability and everything. But oh, I think a lot of people just don't worry about that and just want to have fun. If you're going through the proper channels and you've got all the licenses, what what makes that a DIY place as opposed to an actual more established business? Right. Huh. That's interesting because, yeah, is it a DIY venue if they're paying taxes? <laughs> but they're still, you can still do it yourself and obey the law can't you that that seems okay <laughs> that's no fun <laughs> yeah but so, i, I mean, guess once you get to that point there's probably someone else smaller than you that's like oh they're not diy anymore you know they yeah. pay their taxes so we'll do it and that's that's how things stay relevant and stay cool and get passed down to you know whatever the next generation or the next people is you, you always need people usually younger people coming up doing something cool and different i would think that that would be expensive and risky kind of running these illegal DIYs. And 
I was poking around online looking for more information, and I came across this article about a, a tragedy that occurred at the ghost ship in Oakland, California in December oh, 2016. No. Do you remember that? I think it was at a fire. Yes. And there were yeah, a whole bunch of people killed. Yeah. Awful. A whole bunch of people yeah. killed, and it was like, brought about increased scrutiny on independent artist run venues across the country. It just it yeah. sounds like running those illegal clubs would be expensive and potentially dangerous from a legal and, and personal safety aspect. So what makes them so special? What makes them, you were a band, you, you played in some of these, play, well, you talked about the house party. Why would a band right, right. be drawn to a venue like that? I think it's the idea that, that there's a sort of like-minded communities around the country and around the world. And, you know, there are bands who will absolutely book DIY tours and there are networks of these places. And I see, you know, this used to be maximum rock and roll magazine was, you know, is still is a punk magazine, but in the eighties before the internet, if you were a punk band and you wanted to book a tour, you would go in maximum rock and roll. You would like, I mean, I have a friend who has an incredible story about booking his band back then. He's like, you know, I wrote letters to 60 different punk houses across the country. I included a cassette. Like that is how he booked his band's first tour. Wow. By doing that. So, that. so some version of that has always existed and still exists definitely. And it's much easier through social media and, you know, email, whatever to communicate. And I think I know that there, you know, there are people who, you know, you go when you know, when you go to this city, you want to play that house and you, you email them or you DM them and that's how you book it. So I think what's exciting is knowing that there's these network of people, even though they might not be people, you know, and they might not be from your town. There's a common ethos and a common like, we're all doing this only because we want to. In most cases, all or most of the money will go to the artist, which is, of course, different than places with bars and expensive rent and things like that. So it's it's really the idea that the people who, you know, run these places, perform in them and go to them are all trying to support this system that exists outside of the mainstream in, in lots of ways. So pre-internet, how do people find out about these venues? Like you're new to a town, you want to find out where you can go listen to some cool music that's kind of underground, where other than the magazine that you just mentioned, how are you supposed to find out about this? All right. I mean, my best guess would be the record store Ah, (laughs) as a former record store owner. That's that was always how I mean, when I was in bands in the 90s, early 90s, so the internet existed, but certainly not in the way it does now, we would we would always pull into a city and try to find the cool record store. And that's always how we found. Yeah. And these are the good restaurants. And then usually it was in the cool neighborhood, but that was like the target thing. It's like, we can find the record store. Everything else will come. Or it's the vegan cafe or the vegetarian. restaurant. It's always (laughs) like, (laughs) I sound like I'm making fun of myself really, but like, those are always, you know, the thrift store, something near the university. There's always like a way to find things. Would you say these are scattered across the country or Mm -hmm. would you mainly find them in places like New York and LA and Seattle? I would get, I'm totally guessing now, I would guess you mainly find them actually more in less dense cities and smaller towns where it's, where there's more space where you can have a situation like the neighbor one in Texas where, you know, where it's easier to, to have a band pull up and play. But I think they exist everywhere, but I think there's probably more of a need for them and more ability for them to operate in sort of more rural areas. Well, this was interesting. I loved reading her book. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Yeah. So you've enlightened me. I now know much (laughs) more about DIY music venues than (laughs) I did before. Next time you travel, you should just, you know, go to the record store, ask where the DIY venue is and pop in. 
Yeah, and I'll pop in uh, at the vegan restaurants and see what yeah, I can find out. Exactly. What have you got going on now? Uh, what do I have going on now? I'm uh, I'm home right now. I've been in Brooklyn so far this year, but um, I'm heading out on some more book tour stuff. I'm doing a thing in, in uh, at the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho next week, a book sort of talk, and I'm really excited that they found that murderer before I go. Um, yes. And uh, all, all over the place, doing a thing in Newport Beach, California soon. And then the thing I'm most excited about, because I've been working on this for a while, is there's a lot of... Toward the end of my book, I sort of, through family tree and through a bunch of information, I discover a bunch of my enslaved ancestors who lived in Alabama and Mississippi. And I kind of have not exact spots, but like names of towns where they lived and they're small cities and they still exist. And so, and there's, there's an Ayers Cemetery, for instance, in Mississippi in this oh town. Gosh. So, so I've booked, um, it's basically a week long book tour of the South. So I'm flying to Atlanta and doing an event in Atlanta, Athens, Georgia, Tuscaloosa, Alabama nashville and then memphis and then between i'm gonna get to drive and you know visit all these spots and hopefully meet some cool people and learn some things you need to hit up Asheville. yeah i know Asheville. are you in Asheville? Mm-hmm. ah that's a great town i was there once in a band i loved it need to come to Asheville and do malaprops that's a great bookstore oh great you have a lot of uh a lot of rock stars who live there who else lives there or not who else? Who lives there? <laughs> I believe Angel Olsen. I mean, maybe not rock stars, but, you know, rock stars in my world. Angel Olsen. Moses Sumney, I think, is there. Alado Negro moved there from Brooklyn a year or two ago. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of artists and musicians in Asheville. Well, I got to go find them, and I got to go to some underground DIY music yeah. venues. So that's, <laughs> exactly. That's now on my list of things to do. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Of course. I'm sure I'll be hitting you up again soon. All right. Nice to see you again. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks so much. Bye. Find out more about Nabil Ayers at his website, nabilayers.com. You can also find him on Twitter and Instagram at Nabil Ayers. Don't forget to check out my bonus interview with Nabil from last year about his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine in the Rock is Lit Vault. A big thank you to Sarah Pinsker, whose novel, A Song for a New Day, provided the inspiration for and focus of this episode. Visit her website at sarahpinsker.com and find her on Twitter at Sarah Pinsker. You can purchase a song for a new day, Sarah's other books, and the Bill Ayers memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. Well, I am just the size of a half-finished thought and most of my thoughts are on you From the day that I arrived To be the only thing I can While I have worked at being larger in your view And the sign out on the midway Calls me a real life human doll But you're the one who lights up the marquee And people pay to look at me Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And don't forget to leave a comment and a rating on Good Pods or whichever platform you use to access the show. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.